True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The old stained squares of carpets come away easily. They've been pressed down on the cold cement floor for so long, with many families walking and living their lives over them but the glue only barely secures them in place, a pretense of permanence. The young man is utterly bored with the task, until he pulls up a square in the bedroom and finds a neatly folded piece of paper. The words he reads will change his life and the lives of so many others forever. Sandor, if you're reading this, I'm dead. Contained herein is all the information relating to the investigation that was undertaken, the details of those concerned, and their level of involvement. Your mission is to bring them all down. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 63, The Murder of Tandiwe. Betty Ketani. This episode is sponsored by CBS Justice, the home of true crime in South Africa. Visit the website at cbsjustice.tv or tune in to DSTV Channel 170 and catch compelling new true crime series every month. A huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Michelle Collins, Tasha Lowe, and Nadia Force for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by Print Crowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Today's episode is a story you would expect to see in a really complex movie plot. Yet it's unfolded in South Africa just a few years ago. The story of the murder of Tandiwe Betty Ketani and the ensuing cover-up 
is one that ignites hope for all cold cases. It represents how, even more than a decade after a crime is committed, with just the right circumstances and a committed team of investigators and prosecutors, justice can be delivered. It's also a story that's played out far too many times in South African history. A mother leaves her family in the province of her birth to travel thousands of kilometres to find work. But suddenly the calls dry up and the money stops coming and her family are left with nothing more than questions and frustrated attempts to find her. In researching this episode, I predominantly used the book Cold Case Confession by Alex Elisiv. Elisiv is an investigative journalist and worked for newspapers such as The Star and The Sunday Times. At the time of the Katani case, he was working for Eyewitness News, and he broke the story and covered the trial extensively. So let's get into episode 63. The murder of Tandiwe Betty Katani. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. This case unravels over more than 17 years. It contains an extensive cast of characters, so much so that the book Cold Case Confession starts with an index of the people involved in the case and their roles. When you're reading a book, it's easy enough to go back and double-check who a person is in the context of the story. But when you're listening to a podcast, it makes it a little bit more difficult so in this episode, I will refer to certain people, such as some of the investigators involved and some minor role players, without using their names. This is not out of disrespect, but simply to make following along easier for everyone. One name that I will most definitely be saying a lot is Tandiwe Betty Kitani. For those of you that are familiar with this case, You'll likely know this woman only as Betty, but that's not the name her mother gave her. Betty is the name that Tandiwe adopted as her English name when she started working. Tandiwe grew up in New Bright in Queenstown. She was one of ten siblings. Her mother Eunice married her father and had five children with him, including Tandiwe. The couple then divorced and Eunice married again and had another five children with her new husband. There were no stepbrother or stepsister labels in the home, though, and the only way to tell the children's parentage apart was by the surname they carried. Tandiwe and her brother Mankinki were raised by their grandfather's sister. This, of course, is not uncommon in African culture, with a phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, is lived daily. Children will often live with and be raised by extended family members for many different reasons. The most common is that parents need to work in other provinces and cannot care for their children there. Sometimes it's just more convenient in terms of schooling. 
Tandiwe was very close to her brother Mankinki, who would use the English name Eric. That name would come to hold even more significance in Tandiwe's life later on. New Bright was a volatile place in the 1970s when Tandiwe was growing up. Gangs formed in the area, and young men were being recruited regularly. The girl was so concerned for her brother's safety that he would later recall how she had followed him everywhere. The Katani siblings, though, did not fall into the trap of gangs and crime. Instead, both would move to other provinces and find work, Mankinki as a mechanic and Tandiwe initially as a domestic worker. When Tandiwe moved to Johannesburg, the past laws were still very much in place in apartheid South Africa, and employers would have to sign their employees' passes to indicate that they were allowed to move in what were then so-called white areas. Tandiwe found herself in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg, working as a domestic worker for a doctor, but soon she found work as a cook in a new restaurant that had opened up in Hillbrow in the mid-80s. Cranks was opened in what was the cultural hub of Hillbrow at that time, and it blended in perfectly with its strange combination of odd decor, including naked, suspended Barbie dolls in Kama Sutra-like positions while serving Eastern-inspired dishes. The restaurant's owner and the brain behind the popular eating spot was Eric Nietzsche Lemkes, the man had become obsessed with Thai, Indonesian and other Eastern-inspired dishes when he married his first wife, a Thai woman. For Tandiwe, I can only imagine that learning to cook these dishes must have been a huge challenge. The flavours, ingredients and methods of preparation were far removed from what she'd grown up eating. But she learned quickly and soon became the restaurant's head cook. For Tandiwe, it was not just the dishes that were challenging, though. Her boss, Eric, was more complex a puzzle than any pad thai. No matter who you speak to, the word consistently used to describe Eric is explosive. He was allegedly very controlling of his staff and extremely secretive. He seemed to trust no one and he would hire and fire staff on a whim. Many of Eric's employees were illegal immigrants, and prior to 1994, there were very few labour laws in place to protect black staff. Cranks was known as a place that underpaid its employees. Eric also didn't bother going to the trouble of learning his employees' names. He referred to them by nicknames he came up with, based on their physical appearance or the colour of their aprons. Despite his temper and poor treatment of his staff, Tandiwe had stuck with Eric and Cranks for almost 14 years and became the most trusted of his generally mistrusted staff complements. She also became a mother figure to the other staff members, guiding them around the landmines of Eric's explosions and teaching them all she'd learned about Thai cuisine. During her time at Cranks, Tandiwe had become a mother, 
She had three children, two girls and a boy. The two older children lived with her mother in the Eastern Cape, and her seven-month-old baby girl lived with her in a flat in Berea. When the child was old enough to be weaned, she too would go to live with her grandmother. Tandiwe held on to her job at Cranks, despite its difficulties, because the regular income was literally life-changing for her family. The money she sent home helped not just her own children, but also her mother and her younger siblings. Tandiwe loved to spoil her family, and when she returned home to the Eastern Cape for holidays, she would max out her clothing accounts and take bags of clothes and other treats home for everyone to enjoy. From the descriptions given by her family, I picture Tandiwe as a woman way ahead of her times. She never married and never felt the need to. Despite being a disadvantaged citizen in a society not built to raise her up, she worked hard and did not shrink away to suit those who thought she should be in the background. She loved bold, vibrant clothes, and in many photographs of her, she wears brightly coloured sunglasses and an ear-to-ear smile. Despite the distance, Tandiwe kept in regular contact with her siblings, who were at the time spread across the country. Although conditions were not always the best at Cranks, Tandiwe made it work for the sake of her paycheck, and she enjoyed cooking in the fast-paced environment, and felt like the Cranks staff were another family. She managed to keep her head up and maintain a delicately balanced working relationship with Eric, until 1999, when everything changed. 1999 was a weird year for the entire world. It was the final year of the millennium, and theories abounded that when the clock struck midnight on the final day of the year, computer systems across the world would not be able to handle the change in year format, and everything would crash. Whilst most people realized that this was highly unlikely, it didn't stop us from wondering what life would be like when our years no longer started with 19. The concern about computers and worldwide crashes was very far from Tandiwe Betty Katani's mind, though, in April 1999, as she had a new boss at Cranks, and things were headed downhill quickly. Tandiwe's 14-year tenure with Cranks and the tenuous position of trust she'd built with Eric all came to a crashing halt in April and May of 1999. Eric's daughter, Monique, had arrived in South Africa. She, her mother and sister, had been living overseas, and she decided to return to the country of her birth and help her father to run his restaurant. If Eric was generally mistrusting and found it difficult to relinquish control, he had no problem doing so to his daughter. By this time, Cranks had moved locations three times. Hillbrow was no longer safe enough to attract customers, so Eric had settled on Rosebank as the new location for the business. The clientele in that area fit well with his quirky style, and eastern dishes were fast becoming popular cuisine 
in the new South Africa. The minute Monique started working at Cranks, she started making changes. She seemed to be concerned about the amount of sway that Tandiwe held with the staff and demoted her almost immediately. Several other staff members were fired on the spot. Legal labour processes were not adhered to, and many staff members went to the CCMA to lodge disputes. Neither Eric nor Monique responded to any of the CCMA cases, so they would continue on in their absence, and several staff members were awarded settlements that they would then struggle to get out of their ex-employers. On the 20th of May 1999, a staff member at Cranks had a conversation with Tandiwe Betty Katani. She told the staff member that she'd lodged a case with the CCMA herself over the unfair demotion and change of duties without consultation, and she was waiting for her case to be heard. That would be the last time that staff member or anyone at Cranks, except perhaps one person, saw Tandiwe Betty Katani alive. The string of staff changes and dismissals had been sparked by a discovery shortly after Monique had started working at Cranks. Eric had found that company checks had been stolen out of his checkbook and cashed fraudulently. Monique then conducted an audit of sorts and claimed to have found other forms of theft, including cash and stock. Monique had called in a private investigation firm she'd been put in touch with via a mutual friend. The man in charge of this firm, and eventually the Cranks theft investigation, is called Carrington Lofton. Carrington Lofton was a man that many others wished to emulate. He presented himself as educated, successful and in control of every aspect of his life. The reality, though, would prove to be quite different. Carrington and his wife Candace had started CNC Commercial Services as a sort of umbrella company. Carrington wasn't dedicated to one industry, and he basically went wherever the money was. Prior to the Laftons starting to offer private investigation services, they'd supplied high-end equipment to the government on a tender basis. Whatever Carrington did, he presented himself as an expert, and he maintained a tight network of people in many different industries. So when he began to advertise his services as a private investigator, he naturally seemed to have all the skills required to do the job. Soon, he was even franchising out his PI business. His wife Candace had been working for a man named Mark Lister, and Mark and a friend of his who lived in Cape Town wanted to start a franchise of the PI business in Hermanus. It didn't seem to be a problem to Carrington that these men had zero experience in private investigations. After all, neither did he. To him, it was all about connections, and Mark had been a police reservist at one point. In early 1999, Carrington signed the franchise agreement with Mark Lister, and they got their first client, Cape Town International Airport, 
who wanted them to investigate luggage pilfering. For the first few months, Carrington travelled between Cape Town and Johannesburg, helping the men to properly investigate their first case. He would later claim that he had been in Cape Town in May of 1999. He would also claim that when Monique Nietzsche-Lemkes hired him to investigate the thefts at her father's restaurant, his involvement and the extent of his investigation had been minimal. He'd simply placed an undercover agent in the restaurant, and as a result of the intelligence he received from that person, certain dismissals had been carried out. In reality, what was happening was far more sinister than that. But it would take 13 years for that to come to light. When Tandiwe Betty Katani did not turn up for work on the 21st of May 1999, most of the employees at Cranks didn't think much of it. She had, after all, been very unhappy, and they thought that perhaps her CCMA case had come through and she decided to leave with whatever settlement she'd got. When Tandiwe did not return home from work on the 20th, her sister, with whom she shared a flat, and who cared for her infant daughter, was a little concerned, but she figured that the woman may have just slept over at her boyfriend's place. When her boyfriend told the woman two days later that he had not seen Tandiwe since the 20th, and no one at Cranks had seen her, her sister became far more concerned, and called the rest of the family in the Eastern Cape. It would emerge that the CCMA had indeed ruled in Tandiwe's favour in the last few days. Tandiwe's family is immediately on high alert. They would not put it past her to leave Eric in the lurch, but she would never abandon her children. Some of her siblings travel from the Eastern Cape to search for her. In her flats they find her ID book, and all of her clothes except what she wore to work on the 20th. None of her toiletries or other belongings are gone. Tandiwe does not have a passport, so there's no way she's left the country. Her siblings visit hospitals, morgues, and speak to her friends. In desperation, they go to Cranks, hoping to speak to her co-workers there. Eric sends them away, though, and warns his staff members not to speak to them. After a week of searching, some of her siblings have no choice but to go back home. They take her infant daughter with them. The siblings have avoided telling their mother about Tandiwe's disappearance, but when the end of May looms and they've heard nothing from their sister, her brother breaks the news to the older woman. Eunice suggests to her son that they should wait and see what happens. Perhaps Tandiwe will come back, she thinks. She's hesitant to involve a police service that she's only just learning to trust. Tandiwe's brother, though, does not want to wait. He suspects that his sister's employer has had something to do with her disappearance, and he's afraid for her safety. On the 31st of May, 1999, he opens a case at Hillbrow Police Station. When the first inspector receives Tandiwe's file, he captures the information onto the system so that her details will be included in the National Missing Persons database.
Unfortunately, when this is done, her first name and surname are horribly misspelled. The only name that's correctly captured is her English name, Betty. This case will be a display of two contrasting sides of our policing system, the one that works and the one that doesn't. Sadly, on the day that Tandiwe is reported missing, it is the system that does not work that her brother encounters. Not only is her name horribly misspelled, an error which will have consequences years later, but in a jurisdiction where police are dealing with one of the highest crime levels in South Africa at the time, a missing persons file for an adult female is of little significance. The only notes in the file indicate that the investigator attempted to make contact with her brother twice and failed. The fact that her brother had also supplied an alternative number, as well as his home address, is ignored, and the final note in the file reads, Reporter not contactable. Despite her brother making it very clear that he believed her employer had something to do with her disappearance, police never visit Cranks during this time. They don't speak to her co-workers, her friends, or her family. They do not visit her flat. Her family tried to do everything they can to locate their lost sister, but they have very few resources, and with one of their main breadwinners now gone, their means are far more stretched. They trust that police have the matter in hand, and that they'll be contacted with any new information, but the phone remains silent, and they have no choice but to get on with the business of living. Tandiwe Betty Katani's file moves lower and lower down the pile, until eventually, covered in dust, it's placed in a drawer and forgotten about. It will eventually emerge that around the time Tandiwe disappeared, there was a policeman investigating events that would come very close to Cranks and Tandiwe, but the connection would never quite be made, at least not in 1999. Shortly before Tandiwe disappeared, during the investigation around the thefts at Cranks, past employees of the restaurant had started to get frightening midnight visits while they slept. Temba Shabalala and his wife had both worked at Cranks at one point. Shortly after they left, Temba was sleeping at home one night when a group of people broke down his door and started screaming at him. They wanted to know what he knew about the thefts at Cranks, and they also demanded to know the locations of two other ex-Cranks employees, as well as his wife. Temba's wife was in KwaZulu-Natal at the time, and he told the men that, but he said he knew nothing about the thefts, nor did he know where the other two people they mentioned were. The men and one woman claimed to be police officers and demanded that Temba come with them. He was terrified. He was distrustful of police under normal circumstances, but he didn't actually think that these people were police officers. There was something strange about the way they conducted themselves, and their uniforms were all different. Whether he liked it or not, Temba was taken from his flat that night and bundled into a car, he was later able to give the registration of a Mazda Stina that some of the group drove in. 
Tembo was severely assaulted and tortured by the group that night. They eventually abandoned him on the side of the road, outside Johannesburg. When he got home, he found that at some point they'd ransacked his flat and stolen an envelope of money he'd been saving to buy a car. Tembo attempted to put the event behind him, but the anonymous group was not finished with him. When they were unable to locate the two other people they were looking for, they came back. They arrived at Timber's place of work in Mulder's Drift. His new boss was far more considerate than Eric had been, and when these people who claimed to be police demanded to take him with them, he first pulled the man aside and asked if he was comfortable going with them. Timber told his boss about the previous attack, and told him that he didn't think these people were police officers. His boss phoned the local police station, and two officers attended. They confirmed that the group were safe to go with, and hesitantly, Timber accompanied the group. Now, to be clear, in case you haven't already figured it out, these people that are kidnapping and assaulting Timber are not doing so in any official police capacity. But already at this early stage, we start to realize that cranks and the people doing investigations for them do have some sway within the police. The nature of that sway will be revealed a little later. Timber was assaulted and tortured once again that night, and he could no longer let the incident lie. He was afraid for his safety, as well as that of his wife and co-workers at Cranks, so he opened a case of assault and kidnapping. The officer who would investigate Timber's case did his best to uncover what was happening. He visited the other people that had been mentioned by the group and found that Ndaba Bebe, a relative of a former Cranks waitress, had also been kidnapped and assaulted. Ndaba had been so brutally beaten that he'd suffered mild brain damage. A third ex-Cranks worker, Ruth Ngubu, was surprised to hear that her fellow ex-colleagues had been experiencing these events. A group of people had tried to kidnap her too, but she'd been able to get away when a crowd on the street had turned on her would-be captors. She'd immediately moved residences and gone into hiding. The officer now had three cases to investigate, which all seemed to link back to Cranks, and all seemed to somehow be related to the internal theft investigation going on there. The officer investigates the possibility of police involvement and runs into a vehicle registration number that another of the victims gave him. It comes back to a pool vehicle used by reservists. When he checks who was using the vehicle on the evening of Timber's attacks, he connects back to a policeman, Carl Ranger, and a reservist, Andre Kutzer. Both men are brought in for questioning, and both admit to using the vehicle and picking up Timber. They say, though, that it was a legitimate pickup, as they'd been told Timber was an illegal immigrant. They also deny any accusations of brutality or torture. The investigating officer was in two minds. 
He knew very well that it was not unheard of for citizens to lie about police brutality to try and get out of something they'd done. He just didn't see Temba as that guy, nor the others. He did question the fact that Ranger and Kutsia had been operating outside of their jurisdiction. The men said that they didn't realise it would be a problem since the tip had come into their station. Feeling that he could definitely solve this case, the officer decided to go out to the place that seemed to connect all these events, Frank's restaurant in Rosebank. When he arrived there, unfortunately, Eric was not there, but Monique was. The officer said that as soon as he saw Monique, he had a bad feeling about her. She tells the man that she doesn't know anything about assaults or kidnappings, but she does tell him about the stolen checks and that she had a few suspects. She did not, at any time, mention the name Tandiwe Betty Katani, and neither did anyone else on Crank's premises. The officer investigating these cases in 1999 wanted to hold an identity parade with Carl Ranger and Andre Kutsia to see if any of the three victims could identify one or both of the men which would help move his case forward. He set up the identity parade, but unfortunately by this point, all three victims were far too terrified to engage any further, and they had all fled. The officer had no choice but to put the case back in his filing cabinet. By 2004, Tandiwe had been missing for five years. Her children had not been told about her disappearance, as her family were hoping beyond hope that she would return. Her two older children learned that a missing person case had been opened with the police by overhearing it being discussed among family members. Her youngest daughter was told that her aunt was her mother. She would find out the truth when she found an old clinic card from when she was a baby and noticed that under her mother's name was a person she didn't know. Even then, her family tried to protect her from the truth and told her that Tandiwe was just a woman that used to look after her. Although it was painful for her family to lie to the child, they really felt that they were doing the right thing for her. When Tandiwe disappeared, some of her siblings were unable to complete their schooling because the money she sent every month provided the resources for them to travel and stay with relatives. Her disappearance had scarred the entire family, and its ramifications would be felt for generations to come. As Tandiwe's family are coming to terms with the fact that they will likely never see her again, in Johannesburg, the man who'd headed up the Cranks investigation is living a very different life. After the investigation at Cranks was wrapped up, Carrington Lofton stayed in contact with Monique Nietzsche Lemkes. Toward the end of 1999, he headed overseas, and upon his return, had a romantic relationship with Monique while still married to Candace. It would later emerge that Candace had discovered his infidelity and attempted suicide. The pair divorced soon after. Carrington eased out of the private investigation world and tried his hand at several other businesses during this time. He lived overseas for periods and then returned to South Africa. 
Monique left South Africa in 2002 to live in Thailand and then Australia. Before Carrington Lofton broke contact with Monique and ceased his work at Cranks, Eric Nietzsche Lemkes would be the victim of several robberies. One occurred at his home and he was certain that it had been an inside job because there was no forced entry. In all, over that time period, he claimed to have had 450,000 rand stolen from him. Eric initially believed that Carrington had been responsible for these robberies, but soon he would acknowledge that there was a very good chance his daughter had been involved too. When he opened a case at the police and mentioned his daughter's name, she fled to Thailand. Another robbery occurred close to Eric's home around this time, which at first didn't seem to have any link to him. A jewellery store was robbed, and a large amount of cash and precious gems were taken. It so happened that Carrington Lofton had purchased a ring from this store for the woman that would become his second wife shortly before it was robbed. When Monique fled the country, her father followed her, and in her hotel room in Thailand, he found a copy of a fax. Yes, it was still back when we used faxes. The letter was addressed to Monique and appeared to be a script for some sort of performance in which six men would rob a jewellery store. It didn't take long for Eric to put the pieces together and realise that his daughter was orchestrating several robberies with Carrington Lofton. Eric did not take this evidence to police, at least not when it happened. It's important to remember that many of these events were only brought to light 13 years after the fact. While I'm telling the story in chronological order, simply because it makes more sense to me that way, most of the characters in the story were not aware of what was going on in the other pieces of this puzzle. Carrington Lofton met his second wife, Jane, at a tobacconist's store while he was actually still with his wife, Candace. Jane fell pregnant with his child, and they married as soon as his divorce was finalised. This marriage would not last very long, but Carrington would leave Jane with an envelope that she shut away in her father's safe and forgot about. At the time, he called it his insurance policy. Even after they divorced, she thought nothing more of the envelope, but it would come back to bite Carrington years later. Carrington Lofton's track record with relationships mirrored his track record with everything else in his life. He didn't seem able or willing to commit to anything for very long. He would open and close seven different businesses, live in 11 different houses, and Jane would not be his last wife either. There's a character in the story that I have not introduced you to yet and I think now is as good a time as any. Conway Brown had met Carrington through a mutual friend in 1998. Conway was a pretty simple man who'd struggled throughout his life and worked mainly manual labour jobs. He was a brilliant artist, though, but this would always just be a hobby for him. By the time the two men met, Conway had been married to his wife Blanche for five years, 
he'd legally adopted her son when they married, who'd actually been fathered by his own cousin. And for all intents and purposes, Conway saw the child as his own. The couple struggled financially, but always paid their bills. Conway just wished that there was a way he could make more money, so that things didn't have to be so tight all the time. When he met Carrington, he was in awe. The man dropped money on lunch that Conway would spend on his entire month's grocery bill. So when Carrington asked Conway if he'd like to do some odd jobs to help out in his PR business, Conway jumped at the chance. He would later say that at first he just did menial tasks for Carrington, driving his agents around or fetching and carrying items. He and Blanche had moved into a rented property in Leo Street, Kenilworth, just before he met Carrington. The property, which was semi-detached from the main house, was perfect for their family, and their landlords, the Marshalls, soon became good friends of theirs. The Marshalls will later say that they'd valued the Browns as tenants because they always paid their rent on time and they looked after the home really well. Conway even cultivated a beautiful garden out of almost nothing. The Murrays were close enough to their tenants that they start to notice, in 2004, that Conway Brown had started to change. He'd started to lose weight and seemed very stressed. He drank much more than he had before and worked long hours. That December, the Marshalls were going to the coast for a holiday, as they often did, and they asked the Browns to look after their house. When they returned in early January, the Browns were gone. They'd given no notice, and they were ahead on their rent, but didn't even ask for their deposit back. They just disappeared. The Marshalls respected their privacy and didn't try to track them down, but they would hear from them again, just not in the way they could ever have expected. In 2008, the sister that Tandiwe was living with in Johannesburg passed away. She would never know what had happened to her sister. In 2010, when Soccer World Cup fever hit South Africa, Carrington offers security services to tourists during the World Cup. It's also around this time that his marriage to Jane breaks down, when he meets his third wife, Anel. Monique Nietzsche-Lemkes has settled in Australia around this time, and she soon becomes a household name there. Monique starts work as an air hostess for an airline named Jetstar. On one flight, she alleges that she's found a fake explosive device in an airplane toilet. The incident is traumatising to her, she says, and the airline doesn't react in the way she'd expect, so she decides to take action. She becomes a whistleblower, alleging that the airline is not following labour protocols and testifies in an inquest that is held as a result. The airline hits back by saying that Monique was dismissed because the trauma she suffered from the alleged incident, combined with a personality disorder she'd suffered from, had made it impossible for her to carry out her duties. Back in South Africa, Cranks is not doing well, and it's clear that Eric's business is eking out its last days of existence. 
even the boon of the Soccer World Cup, cannot keep him afloat, and the mall in which he rents space in Rosebank starts legal proceedings against him to the tune of one million rand which he owes in back rent. The proceedings will take more than two years to wrap up, and by the time they do, a court case of a very different kind will be underway. On the 31st of March 2012, the marshals have eventually managed to get a very bad set of tenants out of the property the Browns once rented. The people owe them money, but they're just glad to have them out so they can start cleaning up the property for their next tenants. As they enter the property, they realise they're going to have to tear up the carpets. They were laid almost 20 years before by the marshals, and they were cheap quality to start with. Now the tenants' dogs have urinated on them, and the stench is unbearable. The family set to work tearing up the squares of carpet. The glue gives away easily, so it's not hard work, it's just quite dirty, as twenty years' worth of dust billows up with each pull. The marshal's son is working in the main bedroom when he pulls up a piece of carpet and finds something unexpected underneath. It's a folded A4 piece of paper, and inside there are more folded pieces of paper. On the outside of the bundle are the handwritten words, Do not throw away. The first piece of paper the family looks at has several names written on it. Some names have telephone numbers next to them, others have ID numbers, and one simply says, Alive, next to it. The names on the list include Eric, Ruthen Guber, Dirk, Dave Ranger, and Carl Ranger. A second piece of paper is a handwritten letter. It's written on a scrap piece of paper in pencil. Some areas are dark, and you can tell the writer was pressing hard, but other areas are lighter. The letter is addressed to Blanche. The first line reads, Dear Blanche, this is what happened. The letter refers to a house robbery, and it's difficult to tell whether the letter is a plan for a robbery or a recounting of an event that actually happened, because the writer switches between past and present tense. The next piece of paper is a typed-up letter. It appears to be an affidavit of sorts. The paragraphs are numbered in the same way a legal document would be. It's dated 30 September 1999. The letter starts with the ominous words, quote, Sandor, if you're reading this, I am dead. End quote. The document goes on to tell the reader about various events that have occurred during an investigation. The first paragraph refers to the kidnapping and torture of one Temba Shabalala. It details the people involved. Quote, Me, Mark, Monique, and Dirk. End quote. And it refers to an officer that was investigating Temba's kidnapping, saying that the officer would be most interested to know that Monique, Carl, and Andre all know each other. The rest of the letter describes the attack on Daba Bebe, as well as another man who'd worked at Cranks. 
The writer also tells the reader where to find sex tapes and photos involving Monique. It also refers to Ruth Nuba and states that Monique had told her father that Ruth had been killed, but the writer says her death was faked by Monique to fool her father. All of this is very interesting, although at this point it means absolutely nothing to the Marshall family. They don't know any of these people. It's the second paragraph of the letter, though, that really jumps out at the family, because it not only mentions someone they know very well, Conway Brown, but it also mentions their own property, the very house they're standing in reading the letter. In the statement, the author says that a woman he calls Betty Katani was killed. He goes on to explain that the woman had been kidnapped and then stabbed. They'd believed she was dead, but then she was found by a passerby and taken to the hospital. The hospital contacted Monique to let her know that one of her employees was in their care. The writer says that he and other men had dressed up as hospital employees and abducted the woman from her hospital bed. They'd then taken her to a farm in Clip River that belonged to a friend, and where they'd also previously taken the people they'd abducted and assaulted. The property had a hollowed-out bus on it, and they'd locked the woman in the bus. When they returned the next morning, she was dead. The letter says that Conway Brown and others had buried the woman behind the garage on the property he lived on. The letter contains a distinct signature on each page, but no name in the sign-off. The marshals are shocked, and they have no idea what to think. They'd thought that they'd known Conway, but was it possible he could have been involved in something like this? Or was it just the ramblings of an overactive imagination, and perhaps there really wasn't a body buried under their begonias? The marshals decide that they cannot sit on these letters. If any of the writings are true, then there are murderers running loose, and a woman whose family doesn't know where she is. They don't, however, feel comfortable taking this directly to the police. If these type of people really did stash a murder victim on their property, then they could be at risk if the matter is not investigated delicately. So instead of going directly to the police, they approach a private security agency called VIP Support Systems. The agency often carries out investigations and covert operations with the police and the Hawks, but the marshals like the fact that the agency is private, so they'll be able to establish the validity of the claims in the letters before anything is done. Two agents at VIP Support Services have the letters delivered to them within 24 hours of them being found. They look through the documents, and their immediate reaction is that these cannot be real. The team is involved in an abalone bust, so they set the papers aside for the time being, but when the bust is delayed and they're just sitting around waiting, they decide to see how much truth can be extracted from the letters. There are many moments in this story when things could have gone one way or another, when, if things didn't work out just so, the truth may never have surfaced, 
and this is one of them. If the team's Abalone bust had not been delayed, and it had taken place that day, they likely would have been bogged down in admin and paperwork for weeks, and may have never gotten around to those letters. But it was delayed, and they did look at the letters. With just a few Google and Facebook searches, the agents are able to determine that the people named in the documents do actually exist. They are not figments of a drug addict's imagination or a psychotic break. Next, they track down the officer that investigated Timber's case. He's no longer with the police, and he's done his utmost to forget the cases he covered while in Hilbra. It is by tracking down this ex-policeman, though, that a current policeman becomes aware of the case. Colonel Andre Nietlung has been involved in some of the biggest cases in South Africa, but he's managed to stay very far under the media's radar. Nietlung is known as Inspector Gadget because he loves his technology and gets amazing results by using it. He agrees to run cell phone traces and company searches on the information contained in the documents, and the puzzle starts to fill in just a little. When they search CNC Commercial Services, they come up with Carrington Lofton's name. The other players' names are already on the board. He is the last, and the agents and policemen start to wonder if he could be the author of the typed-up statement. They decide that they'll leave Lofton for last, though, and really they still have no idea whether any crime has actually been committed, or if the letter is just a sick, practical joke. They search the missing person system for the name Betty Katani, which is the name in the letter, but nothing comes up. Of course, nothing comes up, because 13 years before, a policeman horribly misspelled Betty's surname. Then they decide that if they're going to take this any further, they need to know if there really is a body under the begonias in Leo Street. That has to be their first step, before they spend any more time on this, because a murder is worth investigating 13 years later, and assault and kidnapping is definitely not something they're going to dredge up. But a body, that's a different story. The marshals have no problem with the agents and policemen coming in and opening up their property. They too would like to know if they've been living with a dead body for 13 years. Just four days after the letters are found, excavations begin at Leo Street. Almost immediately, they find some woolen clothing. The agents have been instructed that if they find anything that remotely resembles bone, they are to stop digging immediately and wait for police officials. So when they see something white and hard, the forensic pathologist is called in. Dr. Shakira Holland does not take long to burst their bubble, though, as she tells the men they found limestone and not bone. The dig continues, but ten hours later, and with almost the entire backyard dug up, they've found nothing. The men leave with their proverbial tails between their legs. In the meantime, police involvement in the case has been made official, 
and other leads in the case are being followed up. Chief among these are the kidnapping and assault victims. After much searching, the three victims are located and interviewed. Their stories differ slightly from what the hidden statement claims happened, but all three still feel the trauma of their experiences, as though it happened the day before. Although they've yet to find a body, police check to see if they can confirm that someone was booked into a hospital around that time with the injuries described in the letter. Unfortunately, they are a few years too late, and records from 1999 have been destroyed just two years before. Police decide to run the name mentioned for the victim through the credits check system to see what comes up. Sure enough, a credit profile comes up under the name, and attached to it is an ID number. Tandiwe Betty Katani's store accounts also tell a story. She'd been faithfully paying off her accounts each month, until May 1999, when all payments stopped, and she could not be traced. She was eventually blacklisted. Now armed with an ID number, Police search the missing person's database again and strike gold. Although Tandiwe's name had been horribly butchered when it was entered into the system, the digits were correctly captured. Police now have a case number for a missing persons docket for a woman that an unnamed author claims to have murdered, but whose body they can't seem to find. They need to find Tandiwe's body, so they set out to the Marshall property for a second dig. Once again, they find nothing. The VIP agents decide to visit Eric at Cranks. He's recently married another Thai woman, who he picked out of a photo album, and he has a child with her. He's not pleased to see these official-looking people, and immediately becomes aggressive. He barely lets the men get a word out and proceeds to insult them. The agents show Eric the letter describing the armed robbery, the one they believe was written by Conway Brown to his wife, and ask him if the scenario sounds familiar to him. He reads the letter and makes a photocopy for himself, and then tells them that his house was robbed in a similar manner in the early 2000s. Not all the details are correct, though, he says. The interview eventually degenerates into a shouting match, and the agents leave. Police decide to target the seemingly smaller players in the story first, hoping to build up more evidence and admissions before striking out at Carrington, Monique and Conway. They start with Dirk Reinecker, who's mentioned in the letters. Dirk tells police that he was present during the abduction of Tandiwe Betty Katani, but according to him, she was taken to a hotel room in Santon and then released without being harmed. He knows nothing of murder. Dirk has more to offer, though. He was the link between Monique and Carrington. He'd introduced them and could confirm that Carrington was, was carrying out a full-scale investigation into the thefts at Cranks. Some of the people mentioned in the letters are not traceable in South Africa. Monique is living in Australia, 
and lawyers up when she's contacted. Mark Lister, who was running Carrington's Cape Town franchise, and is also mentioned, is also living in Australia. He is now a member of the Queensland Police. And then there's Sandor, to whom the typed letter is addressed. He is identified as Sandor Egyed. He's a Hungarian immigrant who was friends with Conway Brown for years. Conway introduced him to Carrington Lofton, and the two men became fast friends. So much so that it appears Carrington had addressed his confession letter to the man with an instruction to make sure people paid. Police struggle to find Sandor and eventually discover he's immigrated to New Zealand. All attempts to make contact with him are ignored. When police eventually decide to bring Conway in for questioning, he initially claims he has no idea what they're talking about. Slowly, though, they'll start to break him down, and the admissions will start to flow. Conway Brown's version will be as follows. In May 1999, he was called out to a small holding near Clip River by Carrington Lofton. He believed that maybe the man had car trouble, but when he got there, Carrington got out of his car, pulling a woman who was hooded with a black cloth. Conway claimed that Carrington pushed the woman against him and then stabbed her in the head with a long, thin piece of steel. All this had been done without a word being said, and he had no idea who the woman was. Carrington then got into his vehicle and left Conway there, was what he thought was a dead body. Conway said that he had no idea if Carrington expected him to get rid of the body, but since he'd said nothing, he just got into his car and drove away, leaving the woman lying in the road. He then said that a few days later, Monique and Dirk arrived at his house with a white van and the body of a woman inside. The three then decided to bury her body behind Conway's garage and seal it over with concrete. Conway said that the woman's body had lain there for five years, until in 2004, on Carrington's orders, he and a man called Paul Toff Nielsen, who is a colleague and lifelong friend of Carrington's, dig up the remains of Tandiwe Betty Katani and place them into rubbish bags. They scatter some of her remains at a municipal rubbish dump, and they take the whole bones, like the skull and arms, and crush them with a hammer and throw them into the river. Upon hearing this, the police now understand why they have not found anything in the grave under the begonias. There's a certain amount of vindication in this. There's no way that they could have known Tandiwe had been moved. Conway agrees to cooperate with police, and he's allowed to go home and even on a work trip to Italy. He's told that he is to expect no reduction in sentence or special favours in return for his cooperation, and he agrees. It is now time for police to pull in Carrington Lofton, but this seems easier said than done. The man has lived in six different houses in twelve years, and even though police are able to talk to him on the phone while posing as possible contributors to a motoring magazine he now runs, he's very cagey about providing any fixed address for himself.
Carrington and his third wife, Anal, have two sons. Both are under two years old. Eventually, after trying many different ruses, police use Conway to lure him in. He doesn't suspect a thing, and he is apprehended on his way to meet Conway. Police initially arrest him on suspicion of being in the possession of illegal weapons, and they use this as a way to get into his house. Soon, though, he's arrested and told that he's been investigated on a murder charge. Carrington's passport and cell phone are seized, and a huge number of messages from debt collectors are found on his cell phone, which prove he's living a facade of a life. When Carrington is presented with the documents, he claims to have no knowledge of them or the information contained in them. He especially denies being the author of the typed-up statement. According to Carrington Lofton, he was not even in Johannesburg in May 1999, and he certainly played no role in any abductions or a murder. As soon as Carrington is behind bars, the other five men are arrested in due course. The Ranger brothers, Paul Toft Nielsen, Dirk Reinecker and Conway Brown are all taken into custody. Conway may have allowed himself to believe that his cooperation would somehow have been viewed in a light that would mean he would not be arrested, but he knows now that he is going to have to pay for what he was involved in, whether he is truly remorseful or not. What police don't yet know is that Conway has not yet shared the full extent of his involvement. In fact, we may never know the true extent. But what is clear is that the leader of this pack, Carrington Lofton, is the man they want to get behind bars for as long as possible. Monique, of course, has appeared to have been a major contributor to this case. If the confessions are to be believed, she would have had to have been the ones who have given the order for these abductions and murder to take place. But Monique is still safely ensconced in Australia, and she does not appear to be budging. Although police have a pretty solid case in terms of circumstantial evidence, when Prosecutor Hermann Brutreich gets handed this case, he's not happy with what he has. He wants some physical evidence. A body would be first class, but after hearing that Tandiwe's body has been moved and dispersed, there's a good chance that's not going to happen. But he is certain that there must be some small trace left of her in that grave, and so he makes a move that will not make him a popular man among the existing investigative team. He wants Pretorius and Sorno off the case. They are too inexperienced. Instead, he wants a highly experienced Captain Gerard van Veik appointed as head investigator. With this done, he proceeds to arrange another, more thorough excavation. This time, the Victim Identification Centre is involved, and a forensic pathologist who worked on hundreds of apartheid crime graves is called in. The marshals are now far from happy to see the police at their door with equipment to once again dig up their yard, but they concede and the fourth excavation gets underway. By now the search site looks like a landfill. Pieces of concrete from the top layers have been dumped back into the holes, 
and it's a painstaking task to sift through each portion of soil and identify anything of interest. The forensic pathologist knows from experience that even when bodies are moved, the perpetrators often do not realise that bones are left behind. It's most common to find the tiny bones in the hands and feet left behind in graves, and despite their matchstick-like size, these can still hold vital DNA. During this dig, police find three tiny bones. They remove them and photograph them. Later, they will find another three small bones. The pathologist can confirm on site that these are human and they're from a human foot. The Victim Identification Centre already knows that there's a very good chance they will not be able to get DNA out of these bones in their own labs in Pretoria. The small size of the samples means that that specialised equipment will be required. Now I just want to pause here and tell you how, when I was researching this case, I constantly felt reminded of the case of Meadowbrook Doe, which I covered in episode 57. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I suggest that you do, because the parallels between these two cases are quite startling. My mind just kept on pulling me back to that case, so imagine my surprise when I read in Alex Elisiv's book that this case is the reason we now have DNA in the Meadowbrook Doe case. In that case, you'll recall me telling you how Doe's bones were sent to a lab in Bosnia for specialised testing to extract DNA. It turns out that when the VIC got the go-ahead for the bone fragments from Tandiwe's case to be sent to Bosnia, they decided to also send Meadowbrook Doe's bones and the bones from another case. When we compare these two cases... There's of course a lot more evidence available in Tandiwe's case, and it makes sense that that it would be more likely resources would be allocated to it. In Meadowbrook Doe's case, there's very little evidence, but just having her DNA profile gives us the chance to hopefully one day discover her identity and what happened to her. And it is Tandiwe's case that gave her that chance. In the lab in Bosnia, scientists worked on three bones they'd been sent. The first two of the six had been used up in testing in Pretoria. A third had been set aside for future advanced testing methods and would not be used. The other three were sent to Bosnia. The first two tested produced no results, and they were down to the last bone, when they managed to extract a minute sample of DNA. When compared to samples taken from Tandiwe's children, they found a match. The foot bones of Tandiwe, Betty, Katani were buried on the property at Leo Street. Prosecutors now felt far more secure in their case, but they wanted one more piece of physical evidence. Carrington denied being the author of the confession, and he also refused to provide the police with handwriting samples to rule him out. Although the confession had mainly been typed out, there was a handwritten annotation at the bottom of the last page, as well as a signature at the bottom of each page. Police were able to assemble a very small collection of samples of Carrington's handwriting, 
but they were all recent samples, and handwriting does change slightly over time, and a larger collection would be able to give a more conclusive analysis. The first analyst they approached said that they simply couldn't say conclusively one way or another with the samples they'd been provided. Police had confiscated Carrington's passport, and that contained a sample of his signature, which they hoped to use to compare to that on the confession. But they needed more handwriting samples. The first break in this particular part of the case came when Captain Van Veyck had a bright idea. He searched company records for the original forms that had been completed to open C&C Commercial Services in 1999. By a stroke of luck, the forms had been completed by Carrington, and he'd signed them. The other lucky break came from Carrington himself. The man had been consistently denied bail after his arrest, and in keeping with the idea he seemed to have that he didn't fall under the same set of rules as everyone else, he'd made several written requests to prison officials for his family to be allowed to visit him outside of normal visiting hours. These written requests became public property as soon as he submitted them, and they were collected and submitted along with the company application to a handwriting analyst with more than 20 years' experience. This analyst would come back to say that the passport signature matched the signature on the confession, and the handwriting also matched the samples provided. He further concluded that on the samples created after Carrington had been arrested, he had taken great pains to change his signature. Tandiwe's family was advised that her DNA had been positively matched to the bones found in the grave. Thirteen years after her disappearance, they finally had the answers they'd sought for so long. There were still so many questions, though, and they hoped that some of these would be answered in the trial. Conway Brown did not attempt to apply for bail. He'd resigned himself to the fact that he was going to be serving prison time and figured he may as well get started. The trial date was set for the 22nd of July, 2013. When Carrington's second wife discovered that her ex-husband had been arrested, she retrieved that envelope out of her father's safe. Inside, she found photographs. She would say she'd only seen the first of a woman handcuffed with her back facing the camera, and she shoved the photographs back into the envelope, not wanting to see what would happen in the other photos. When prosecutors opened the envelope, they found a collection of very clearly faked photographs. In them, a woman was posed in handcuffs, and then toward the end of the pack, she was lying on the ground with a red mark across her back. Only one photo showed the woman's face, but it was very badly superimposed over the face of the model. The face that had been superimposed belonged to Ruth Ngube, the woman that had been forced to go underground 13 years before to avoid the attempts at her life. She is, of course, also the woman that the typed confession claims Monique had lied to her father about killing. When tied up with Jane's statement, 
that Carrington had given her these and called them his insurance policy. Prosecutors felt they could prove that Carrington had first-hand knowledge of the details in the hidden confession. Conway Brown never did explain why he hadn't just destroyed the letters years ago. If he had, there would have been no investigation. He told police he'd initially hidden the letters there because he felt that if the story ever did come out, at least he'd have some proof of the extent of his true involvement. How he'd come to be in possession of the typed letter was also in dispute. He said that Dirk had given it to him, and he was supposed to pass it on to Sandor. Why Carrington hadn't just given it directly to Sandor himself is another question. The final question is why Conway would not have taken the letters with him when he moved out. Did he honestly think that that carpet would never be pulled up? Although the hospital records had been destroyed, Captain Gerard van Veik wondered if he could find some mention of the stabbing of Tandiwe in police occurrence books. He'd set himself quite the task, though, in locating a book from 13 years before, and then carefully reading through all of the entries. He found one that piqued his interest. On the 20th of May, 1999, an officer recorded in meticulous handwriting that a nurse at Clip River Community Clinic had called in to advise that they'd received a stabbing victim and that they were calling an ambulance to transfer her to the hospital. This was standard procedure in the case of a suspected criminal act, and the idea was that police should attend the hospital and open a case of attempted murder. Of course, if they had, by the time they arrived there, Tandiwe would no longer have been in her hospital bed because she was booked out by three people claiming that they were hospital workers who were transferring her to a private hospital. Van Veik recorded the name of the nurse that had called in and drove out to the community clinic. Miraculously, the nurse still worked at the clinic, and more unbelievably, she remembered the woman being brought in. The reason she recalled it, she said, was because of the strange injury. It was not common to receive stabbing victims with brain injuries, as this woman had. Unfortunately, and probably understandably, the nurse could not remember what the woman had looked like. But this confirmed that the story about how Tandiwe Betty Katani had come to be in hospital was likely true, and this probably meant that the rest of her demise had happened just the way Conway said it had. When prosecutors learned that Carrington's first wife, Candace, had attempted to commit suicide in June 1999, they petitioned to have her medical records submitted into evidence. This was done to prove that the author of the letter, believed to be Carrington, knew the exact dates of Candace's suicide attempt. Candace was living in the United Kingdom, and interestingly, she was terrified that prosecutors would share her contact details with Carrington. She eventually agreed to let them use her medical records in the trial, with the agreement that they would do everything in their power to keep her location a secret. One can only wonder why she would be so afraid of her ex-husband knowing where she lives. 
A month after the arrests in this case, Cranks was shut down and the business liquidated to service the immense debt it had built up. Eric, though, did not seem too perturbed. He had already created an exit strategy and had started the sale of properties and assets months before to fund his immigration to Thailand. There was no solid evidence that Eric had anything to do with the murder or the assaults, and as such, police could only watch as he prepared to board a plane for Thailand. Before he did, though, he made an appointment with Prosecutor Brutrake and handed the man a pack of statements and evidence he'd collected throughout the years against both his own daughter and Carrington Lafton. He told Brutrake that he tried for years to get justice for what they'd done to him, even going as far as, as to bribe officers to get Carrington arrested, and he could only hope that this trial would put the man where he belonged. With that, Eric got on a plane and left South Africa. In the days before the trial is due to start, both Paul and Dirk take deals and agree to testify for the state. The Ranger brothers get no such offer, because they were police officers at the time of their crimes, and as such are held to a higher standard. Conway Brown still has not approached the state for a deal by the date of the trial, but on the day of, he does reach an agreement. Conway will plead guilty and accept two five-year sentences. The first sentence will be suspended, and he'll serve the second. At that point, he's already spent a year in jail, which will be deducted, so he will likely only spend another year in jail before he can start the process of parole. He's now a state witness. With all of the changes to the state's case, the trial is once again postponed, and it will be further postponed when Carrington decides to change his legal team at the last moment. On the 17th of February 2014, the trial eventually begins. Prosecutor Brutrake has been involved in some complex and high-profile trials, the most high-profile of which was the rape trial of ex-president Jacob Zuma. He will tell journalists that the Katani case was still the most stressful he'd ever prosecuted. Everyone on the team feels the same way. So many resources and so much time has gone into this that it would be devastating if they did not get a conviction. When the trial starts, Carrington Lofton pleads not guilty, as expected. His plea explanation is just one sentence. I am being framed, probably by Eric Neitzen Lemkes. Carrington has seen Eric's evidence pack and realized the lengths the man has gone to over the years to get him arrested. He now proposes that this is Eric's final push to get him behind bars. He would like the court to believe that ten years after Eric last made an attempt to get him arrested, he has now orchestrated the finding of these letters in order to frame Carrington for Tandiwe Katani's murder. I'm not sure how Eric got the marshal's tenant's dogs to pee on the carpet, but he must be a persuasive man. In Australia, 
Reporters have realised that they have two major players in South Africa's headline mystery living in their own borders, and they start to hound Mark Lister and Monique Nietzsche-Lemkes. Mark wants nothing to do with them, but he resigns from his post in the Queensland Police in late 2014 and disappears. Monique, however, is very keen to chat to reporters, but she always does so with her lawyer present. Of course, she claims her innocence and says she will do whatever she can to assist the process, but every time prosecutors try to reach out to her, they're met with no response. The defence does their best to raise doubts among the state's witnesses. The DNA expert from Bosnia flies in, and despite their best attempts in cross-examination, the man, who's testified at The Hague in hundreds of cases in his career, is unflappable. Conway Brown's cross-examination lasts five days, and he is almost broken down completely. Everything he says is questioned. The stress of the trial is so significant that even the seasoned Captain Van Vake ends up crumbling. He requires a ten-day break, during which he is treated by a psychiatrist. To his credit, he returns and completes his testimony. Toward the end of the trial, even Bert Rake feels the stress. He experiences a cardiac event and is hospitalized for two weeks. The trial and testimony stretch out like a never-ending puzzle-building mission. Three years after his initial arrest, Carrington Lofton's family have stopped attending the trial. His wife Annelle has met another man and moved in with him, taking their sons with her. When the state eventually rests its case, Carrington takes the stand. He is an impeccable witness in terms of his delivery and attention to detail, but absolutely nothing he says can be corroborated. He's so confident that he often addresses the judge directly. Despite his confidence, though, little of what he says makes any sense. Judgments is handed down on the 16th of February, 2016, four years after the initial arrests and 17 years after Tandiwe Betty Katani left her flat for the last time. The Ranger brothers and Carrington Lofton are found guilty of the charges against them. Tandiwe's daughters will take turns attending the trial. Her oldest daughter is the spitting image of Tandiwe, and when she takes the stand during the sentencing portion of the trial, the three men look like they've seen a ghost. The effect she has on them does not escape her, and she revels in the fact that she can make these men, who have made her life hell and stolen her mother, uncomfortable for even a moment. Conway Brown has already been released from prison by the time his co-accused are sentenced. He follows along in the news like everyone else. He's serving the remainder of his sentence on house arrest. Carrington Lofton is found guilty of the attempted kidnapping of Ruth, two counts of kidnapping Tandiwe Betty Katani, as well as her murder. He's sentenced to 30 years in prison. 
the Ranger brothers are found guilty of culpable homicide and kidnapping. They are sentenced to four years in prison each. Both Carrington and the Ranger brothers will appeal. Carrington appeals both his conviction and his sentence. The Ranger brothers appeal their conviction only. All appeals fail. The investigation team and the prosecution team have achieved justice for Tandiwe, but to them, the mission is not complete. In 2017, prosecutors applied to Australian authorities for the extradition of Mark Lister and Monique Neetson-Lemkes. I was unable to find any updates on this extradition while researching this case. Often, extraditions can take up to 10 years to achieve, and there's no doubt that the recent pandemic would have delayed all processes of this nature. Five days after the sentencing, Tandiwe's family perform a ceremony to call her spirit home. This is a tradition in which, if a family member does not pass away in their homeland, the family must go to the place where they perished to ensure their spirit is ushered home. Sadly, because the family have no remains to bury, they carry an empty coffin with them during the ceremony. Inside the coffin is a shirt and a skirt, laid out where a body should be. First, they go out to the farm in Klopriva, where Tandiwe is alleged to have died in the hollowed-out bus. They call out to their mother and sister's spirit and apologise to her for not being there to comfort her in her time of passing. They ask her to accompany them home. Next, they go to the Leo Street property, where they know she lay for at least five years. They scoop a small amount of soil from the garden into the coffin. Captain Kerat van Veik accompanies the family to ensure they meet no resistance in their journey. By the time the empty coffin is loaded into the vehicle that will transport it back to the Eastern Cape, tears snake their way down the tall man's cheeks. The murder of Tandiwe Betty Katani had far-reaching consequences for her family, her co-workers, and every person who was drawn into the events around it, whether willingly or through the manipulation of Carrington Lafton. Despite all of his pleas of innocence, it is very clear to me that Carrington Lafton spent most of his life twisting others around his finger to get what he wanted and presenting a facade of a successful man to the world when he was anything but. During his trial, it would emerge that this was not the first life he had taken. Seven years before he took Tandiwe Betty Katani's life, he had been arrested for shooting a man he claimed was trying to rob him. The charges against him were eventually withdrawn. I can't help but think that this was Carrington's way of dealing with things, the lengths he went to to hunt Tandiwe down twice and then hide her murder for so long don't point to a first-time criminal, and I can only wonder how many other bodies are buried in gardens that no one knows about and perhaps never will. The true motive behind this murder is difficult to figure out. It's possible that Tandiwe was snuffed out because she'd brought a labour dispute against Cranks, 
but the CCMA had already ruled on that. I tend to think, and of course this is just my opinion, that the entire investigation into these thefts was staged to point attention at the staff instead of the real thief, who I think was a lot closer to Eric than his staff. I would like to say that justice was done for Tandiwe, but I think that justice has only been partial. Real justice would have been her remains being found before she was dumped like trash on municipal grounds and in a river. Real justice would have been all of the people involved in her murder being forced to face a court of law and answer for their crimes. Real justice would have been her being valued for the wonderful human being she was and not being seen as disposable. In passing down sentence, Judge Ranchard said the following, quote, The deceased was abandoned carelessly in the middle of winter in an old bus to die a cold and lonely death. No doubt the deceased must have experienced mortal fear anguish and considerable pain. These actions can only be described as heartless and cruel. This was a brutal attack on a defenceless woman, for reasons that remain unknown. End quote. When the family performed the ceremony to call Tandiwe home, they were filmed by a television program Carte Blanche. Journalist Devi Sankari Govinder hosted the piece which was called Bringing Betty Home. And it is with her words that I'd like to end this episode. As the Katanis leave, I find myself speaking to Betty's spirit in my mind. I tell her that we still don't know why she was murdered. I tell her I'm sorry for the unspeakable suffering she had to endure. But I also tell Betty that she's lucky. Lucky that she had people like Alex Elisiv, Herman Brodrake, Detective Gerard van Veik, and many of the others who didn't rest till they'd solved her murder. I tell Betty that most murders in South Africa are not solved, and that many families don't even know where to find the spirit of their loved ones. I tell Betty I'm glad her family found her spirit. And if she comes across any of those other lost spirits, to tell them to please go home too. Finally, I tell Betty that I so hope she can finally rest in peace. Thank you for listening to episode 63, The Murder of Tandiwe Betty Katani. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.